Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, 1 Thessalonians as we continue our series um, in the book of 1 Thessalonians. So we have been doing this uh, for a few weeks now. Thank you, David. And um, we started with looking uh, in Acts at the beginning, uh, founding of the church. And then we looked, uh, remember that Paul was traveling through Asia with very little success and hitting all sorts of roadblocks. He sees a vision of a man asking him to come to Macedonia, and he comes, they go into Philippi, they have some fruit and some persecution. Same is true in, in Thessalonica. In fact, they're driven out of town. And uh, Paul sends some people back to look and see uh, how things are going. And uh, he, they get a report back that there's a, not just a thriving church, not just a church, but a thriving church in Thessalonica, and it's contagious. And so Paul, one of his earliest letters, is writing back to encourage the church. So we looked at Paul's uh, focus in chapter one on their faith and their, their love and their hope and how that's a continued theme through the book and then how the gospel came to them, how they received it, how it was going out from them and what we've kind of deemed our, our theme here, ordinary people, the church in Thessalonica, ordinary people who are going through much affliction and that's what we're gonna talk about this morning um, with great joy. And because they were doing that, it was a contagious church. So in chapter two, Paul took some, a little bit more time to, to talk about how the, the gospel came to them. And, and part of the reason we talked about is, is there's all this stuff going on that people are saying, man, should it be this hard? Should we be going through this much trouble and affliction? So Paul says, let me remind you of how the gospel again came to you. And then he's going to talk about this suffering in today's Text. So I'm going to review a little bit from uh, chapter 2, verse 1, and then we're going to read through uh, verse 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't worthless. It wasn't empty. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is our witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like nursing, uh, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are our witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into, our own, uh, into his own kingdom and glory. That's where we uh, were last week. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, 
you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out um, and uh, displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. This past week, uh, my middle daughter, Jackie, was, uh, she's always had health issues and uh, she's had this, this weird thing that's happened a couple times recently where she's just woken up and her eyes were just practically swollen shut. And uh, it didn't seem to be just, just allergies. And so this happened again last week. So she, she goes and they were giving her antibiotics and all this stuff. And so she's going through this and we were, we were chatting back and forth. And she said, she said, yeah, dad, I've, I think that God is punishing me because I took too many naps last week. She had taken, you know, here's a, there's a little bit of mom guilt there, right? Two kids, I got three naps. God must be punishing me. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's what God is doing, punishing you for rest. That seems very biblical. And then being the loving, caring, sensitive father that I am, I said, well, you haven't had this much rest in a while. Maybe this is just what you look like now, rested. <laughs> she, uh, she didn't think that was funny. And... Um, so she's been going through this, this process of, and I, as I was thinking about this, I mean, how often do I hear that as a pastor or just as a believer where somebody says, oh, God must be punishing me, or this is happening because I did, th-. we're always trying to connect those things. And so here's a church, right? Again, much affliction. Paul said, look, I understand you're going through much Affliction. Some of you are going through health affliction. Some of you are going through financial affliction. Some of you are going through relational afflictions. Some of you are going through all of those afflictions at the same time. And so you're going through much affliction. And so our tendency is to go, oh man, what did I do to deserve this? And we start kind of going through our mind and we are picking things. I don't think we should start with naps, but you know, I, we, we're trying to figure out what it is. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to kind of understand suffering a little bit. And so what we're going to look at this morning is three types of suffering. Retributive, redemptive, and reflective. Now what we normally think of when we think of suffering is the first one there, retribution. And that is where God is punishing us for something. Now, some of us grew up with some sort of image of God. And one of those images that seems to exist is that God is a really old man who is mean. Jesus is nice, but God is old and mean, and he kind of has his guns at his side, kind of country western style. And he's sitting up in heaven, and he's waiting for you to do something wrong. So he can shoot you real quick, zap you, punish you. And that's not a good picture of God. So 
when we talk about retribution, it's God's wrath on the unrepentant. I want, I want, to hear, I want you to hear that. When we talk about that type of retribution, now when you talk about the idea of retribution, we're talking about at the end, God is going to punish the wicked and he's going to reward the, the righteous, both of those as a retribution. What we're thinking about, though, is that punishment of the wicked. It's God's wrath on the unrepentant. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're part of the uh, righteous, the repentant, then this type of, of wrath doesn't apply to you. And so when we apply it to ourselves, it's a wrong view of God. So retribution, it's God's wrath on the unrepentant. And, and Paul says, we know the terror to come. We know the terror to come. In 2 Corinthians, he says this, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, we use that, that term, fear of the Lord, all through scripture. But if you look at that in Paul's writing and that word of fear, it could, it could just as easily be translated terror. It's not this kind of respective fear. It's, it's a terror. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade others. What? We persuade them to repent and come to Christ. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Look, look Paul says, look, we know what's coming. The second, and so specifically, we know that the wrath of God is being revealed. And Paul says that in Romans chapter 1. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. So when we're talking about the wrath of God, we're talking about that coming on the people who suppress the truth that's being revealed, they, they don't repent, they don't change. Third, we know that God will repay the wicked. In Paul's next letter to the Thessalonians, okay, still speaking about the suffering that they're going through, he says of God, since indeed God considers it just to repay, to repay with affliction those who afflicted you. He says, don't worry, I'm going to take care of this justly. So when we talk about retribution, we're talking about God's wrath on the unrighteous. And I want to say this, just because some of us like to play God sometimes, it's God's wrath to wield, right? This is, this is his wrath, it's not your wrath. And it's specifically against those who reject Christ, who fail to repent, now, if you look at verse 16 in the passage, we're going to end up working backwards uh, this morning. He says, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Look, this affliction is coming. They're trying to hinder us from sharing the truth with the gospels, because, uh, with, with the gospels so that they're saved. This is what they're doing. So he says, so as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. It's kind of an awkward statement. But Paul is using terminology that's repeated throughout Scripture. It's this idea of being filled up or completed with unrighteousness. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, when God makes a covenant with Abraham and he says, look, I'm going to give you this land. Here's, this, land is, this land is your land, okay? I, you're going to get all of this, 
But not until, not until the Amorites who are there, until uh, they are complete, their time is complete, it's filled up. In other words, they're not quite there yet for you to go in and conquer them yet because they haven't filled up in their sins. In fact, he says it's going to be four generations before you're back. You're not coming back, but your, your people will in four generations. Paul is using this terminology from Jesus' woes to the seven woes to uh, the Pharisees. And he uses, Jesus uses terms of the Pharisees. Fill up then the measure of your, uh, your, your sins or your unfaithfulness. And so it's this idea of being filled up. Now, in a sense, there's two parts to this. There's a time period that God allows for people to repent. But when that time comes to completion, they don't repent. It fills up to completion to where then his wrath is revealed. Sometimes we wonder, it's like, why doesn't God just wipe out the unrighteous? Be careful, because we all are tainted with some of that unrighteousness if it not be for the blood of Christ. And so what he is doing is allowing somebody time to repent or that it just fills up to a time where God says, that's enough. And so Paul uses this terminology that's throughout scripture that says, look, you're going through this terrible time, much affliction, but those who are afflicting that are being given a time, and that time is either they're going to repent or it's gonna fill up to God's wrath. And then in 2 Thessalonians, he says, since indeed God considered it just to replay the affliction. Then God is going to deal with it. So God's, it's his wrath to wield. It's against those who reject Christ. It's against those who fill up. And I just want to remind you that this type of judgment belongs to God and to God alone. So God says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. Unfortunately, we're kind of uh, in the same boat of Jonah is that we, we're, we want our enemies to get the wrath of God and we don't want to give them too much time because they might repent. So we want to jump to that vengeance ourselves lest God forgive them like he forgave us. So God says, you leave it to my wrath. I will deal with this. So it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So when we say, I'm going through this because God is punishing me, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that type of punishment doesn't apply to you. Okay? Yeah, praise God for that. But we do still undergo suffering. And that type of suffering is redemptive suffering. You say, oh, now you're just twisting words, Dave. Redemptive suffering. John Piper, in uh, an article, Preparing for Sudden Suffering, uh, gave five reasons we suffer. And I thought this was really helpful, so I'm giving giving him the credit and and borrowing this from him because it's just really helpful. There's five reasons that you and I might undergo suffering, okay? Uh, The first is to lead us to repentance. So Jesus is walking somewhere with his disciples in Luke chapter 13, and uh, they're talking about the story of where one of the kings mixed some blood of some Jewish people into the sacrifices and their mind is like blown like what did 
What did they do to deserve that? And so Jesus says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So here's the logic. These people are walking around and a building falls on them. And the response of the people watching is, I wonder what they did. Right? I mean, man. And Jesus said, do you think they're worse than the other people in Jerusalem? No. That's not the point. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. There's a part, and when we see death, we are reminded that our time on earth is limited. In fact, one of the things I sometimes say at funerals, and I haven't said it in a while because I feel like uh, I don't want people to think it's just part of the, the stick I do or something like that, but I, I love the passage where Solomon says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than it is to go to a house of feasting. So what Solomon says, it, this is really what the text is saying, it is better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a wedding. Right? And so I say at a funeral, most of us, if we got to pick today, we would say, you know, wedding. Except for the men, because some of the men would be like, I don't know, weddings are usually four or five hours. Funeral. Um, but Solomon says, look, it's better to go to a funeral, which in his culture was all day, or a wedding, which was several days. And he says the reason for that is, is because it's at these times that we consider our own life. When we sit at a funeral, sometimes we kind of go, man, I wonder what they'd say about me. Or, man, that person's about my age. That's the scary one. Okay? Or what's even harder, right? When you go, when you start doing the math and you go, oh, that person was younger than me. And you start thinking. And, and what what Jesus is saying is, look, those points in time make you go, if they were sinful enough to have a tower fall on them, I am sinful. I should probably make my relationship right with the Lord before it's too late. So sometimes we're going through suffering because God is saying, please come home. Please come home. Second reason we suffer is reliance. I think this one is probably a bigger one. You might want to star this one, Christian, if you've been around for a while. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Remember Paul was trying to go through Asia, right? Remember that? He says, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despised of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Why am I suffering? God says, because you keep trying to do it yourself. You keep trying to do it yourself. Will you trust in me? Will you rely on me? This is the Apostle Paul here, by the way. Man, things got so bad. We're missing the with joy part here. 
We started to despise our own life. We felt like it was the death sentence and we were just waiting for it to come. And God says, no, I just want you to trust in me. The third reason that we undergo suffering is to make us righteous. In Hebrews, it says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Listen to that. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, I want you to hear what, what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying. There are times that God does chastise us. He does it because he loves us. And if you say, man, I'm just going to try to be a really good child and not undergo that chastisement, just, just listen to these words, and chastises every son. The daughter is included there. Women, you're not get, you don't get out of that one. The, the point is, look, that's just part of the process. He goes on to say, for, the, for, the moment, for in the moment, all discipline seems painful. Painful rather than pleasant. Oh, no kidding. Right? Remember when your, your parents used to say, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you? <laughs> it doesn't. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Look, when we go through this type of, of chastisement, it is good. It's to help us become more like Christ, to be righteous. So don't, don't balk at it. Don't say, well, I don't want that. God, God wants to do that in your life and so that he may reward you. Remember from the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Look, you're going to be rewarded for that. Second Corinthians, it says, for this light momentary uh, affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Look, there's, there's a reward to come. And fifth, Piper points out that it's a reminder. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That when we suffer, we are reminded that the Lord suffered, and we get to participate in that. And that is what, we're, what I'm calling here reflective suffering. Um, look at it in verses 14 and 15. He says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. He said, look, what you're experiencing here in Macedonia is no different than the churches in Judea. And so he says, you, you became imitators of them. He says, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So the churches were born in Judea, and these churches arise, and the Jewish people said, no, they're not doing it right. That, they're not obeying the law. They're doing it. And they persecuted them and persecuted them. And so now you go, oh, we're in Gentile territory now. We shouldn't encounter that. And Paul says, no, you're just getting it from your own countrymen. It's the same thing. And so he says in verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out 
and displease God and oppose all mankind. He says, look, here's the pattern. Jesus came and he was perfect and without sin and people rejected him and they, they afflicted him and, and crucified him and he died and here are our churches and they're following Jesus and what they're persecuted and afflicted and put to death. You are participating in the life of Jesus through this suffering. In fact, Paul says when he is encountering these, these persecutors, he says, I consider it a privilege, a joy to be treated like Jesus was treated. And I, I think we, we miss the point. We say, oh, no, I'm suffering. Oh, this is hard. This is difficult. Shouldn't the Christian life be easier? Go back to our founder. And I think sometimes people think when we encounter difficulties or struggles, we must be doing something wrong. But Jesus said, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Nope, that's the cup. And the cup was the cup of his, God's wrath, poured out on him. Let's look at this in another place. We'll come back to 1 Thessalonians. Look at 1 Peter Peter says a similar thing in chapter 4. We'll pick it up in verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What a a beautiful picture. Don't, Don't be surprised when that fiery trial comes upon you as though... That's weird. Why am I going through all this? He says, why are you... Don't be surprised by that. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is the time of judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be uh, the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, and he quotes, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to faithful creator while doing good. So Peter says this, look, when you're undergoing suffering, don't be surprised. That always, you know, we, we, that's always our first response. Well, why is this happening? Don't be surprised. In fact, when it comes, we are to force ourselves to rejoice. Now, specifically, we are to rejoice, notice what Peter says in verse 13, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Look, if you are suffering because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, rejoice. He suffered, you're suffering, you're going to be rewarded for that. But he says, verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. I, I'm just, that, I love that. I love that verse. Like, 
If you murder somebody and you go to prison and that's hard, you don't rejoice over that, okay? Nothing good happened there. If you steal something and people don't like you because you stole stuff and you get punished, yeah, don't rejoice over that. Or if you're a meddler. <laughs> oh, people are like, man, ah, I was doing good there. Not a murderer. Yeah, I don't think I'm really suffering for stealing. Oh, meddling? What do you mean by meddling? You mean me trying to direct my spouse in the direction that they should go or the pastor in the way that they think they should? You know, I mean, come on, meddling? Here's, here's what Peter's saying. I'm just going to sum this up for you in modern technology, uh, modern words. Don't be a jerk. Look, if, if you're suffering because you're a jerk, stop being a jerk. Okay, that's not, and I, I know that I, people are going, I can't believe he said that. But look, I know so many Christians who are just like, well, I'm going through all this to all these people. They just hate me because I'm, you know, a good Christian. I'm like, no, you, they hate you because you're being a jerk. I want to say that sometimes. Stop meddling and being so annoying all the time. So he says, when, we, when, we're, when we're rejoicing because we're suffering, because we're a follower of Jesus, don't be ashamed of that, verse 16. Don't be ashamed of that type of suffering. You know, listen, we live in a place where really most of us are suffering for being a jerk, not for, for being a follower of Jesus, although those times may come. But we live in a period of time. And you say, but, you know, what if we, what if this? And I said, look, look at the story. It's Jesus' story. And we may very much live it out, some of us in our lifetime, of having to take that type of stand for Jesus Christ. And so we look at these verses in a way of preparation. If that time comes, don't be ashamed of it. But continue to glorify God. Glorify God in that. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Glorify God. Trust him in this process. So Peter says the same thing as Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians. He spelled it out a little bit. Paul just has these couple verses here. But what they're both saying is that when we go through this suffering, it's reflective of the type of life our Savior lived and we too may in, uh, go uh, through that. Now, how do we deal with all this? Paul starts this little section here, verse 13, this paragraph. And he says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. How do we deal with suffering in our life? How do we know if it's a reminder or a reward or whether it's to lead us to righteousness or whether it's to make us repent? Well, what we do is we immerse ourselves in the word of God and we make this our authority and through the power of the Holy Spirit convicting us, we become more like Christ. So at some point in time, if you are undergoing suffering, physical suffering, financial suffering, relational suffering, don't panic. So did Jesus. 
but we dig into his word. We say, God, what do you want me to do in the midst of this suffering to bring you glory? What do you want to do in my life in the midst of this suffering to make me more like Christ? What do you want to do in the midst of this suffering to teach me? Don't just see God as some sort of cosmic punisher. See him as Paul describes him as a father who disciplines his sons and daughters because he loves them. When our kids were growing up, we had uh, two kinds of punishment that we um, kind of dealt with our kids. Um, Sometimes you give your kids a, a, a rule, and this is the one that I've used before. When we lived up in McCall where it snowed and got icy, during the winter we had a rule, don't run on the driveway, which sounds like a really crazy rule unless you've lived somewhere where your driveway ice is over. Because some days you can't even walk on it. Um, I uh, experienced that more than one time. And so you don't want your kids to run outside in their snow boots, hit that ice, and fall. And so just don't run on the driveway. Now, kids are kids, and they disobeyed mom and dad. And they would run, and you know what would happen? Exactly what I thought would happen. They would fall and get hurt, and they would come in. And I would say, this is why mom and dad told you not to run on the driveway because we knew this would happen. Now, at that point in time, we wouldn't say, get ready for a spanking. The the cement already spanked them. (laughs) Didn't, Didn't have to do it. Okay. Now, other times they disobeyed and there was a punishment. So the same is true with God. Sometimes we do things and we just undergo natural consequences. Okay. If you, don't, if you don't understand what natural consequences are and you have a credit card bill, go look at that and read the interest rate. That's called natural consequences, okay? Now, there are other times of punishment where we just go, oh, man, you know what? what? What's going on here? God is trying to mold and shape. And so these are things that are, that are going on with this idea of suffering. Here's some application. Don't confuse God making you holy with punishment. Don't confuse the fact that God is molding you and shaping you into his image as a punishment. He does that because he loves you. Okay? When I told my kids not to run across the driveway, it wasn't because I was just being mean. I don't want you to have fun. I was doing it because I love them. Now, in churches, and I've never said this here, but sometimes in churches, it's, you know, we have a sanctuary, but some churches have like a sanctuary that, that kind of doubles as like also, you know, where they do a wana or kids club in the middle of the week or whatever, you know, it's got more than one. And so we had a church like that. And, and so it was really funny because we would tell kids on Sunday, we'd say, don't run in church. And then on Wednesday, we're like, okay, I want you to run over there as fast as you can. And I want you to run back here and then run over there. And kids could be like, well, this is kind of confusing, okay? Sometimes rules are because of the situation. Why do we tell people not to run on Sunday morning? And parents, we should all tell our kids don't run at church on Sunday morning. 
okay? Because we care about other people. And if our kids catch somebody on the side of their hip as they're running by, there's a few people here that that could be very devastating to. So we say, don't run at church. But then we might have a Sunday night program where we say, run at church, okay? So I say this, that sometimes rules are not because God wants, doesn't want you to have any fun. Rules are because God wants us to treat other people and love other people as well. And so don't confuse God making you uh, suffering and rules of making you holy with punishment. It's not a punishment. Third, don't miss out on rewards. Sometimes we'll do everything we can just to get out of the suffering of the moment. And don't miss the fact that there's some rewards for enduring that. And so, like Jesus and like Paul, we want to say, look, not my will, but yours be done, and I want to finish the race. Whatever this race is, whatever the journey is, I want to complete it, even if it's hard. Look, some of you are undergone some, some suffering of, of physical or, or relational or financial for a long period of time. <laughs> Don't miss out on the reward. Keep going. And rely on God. And we, we say around here all the time, people get sick of, of talking about there's three stages to suffering, okay? I've said it so many times. You're either coming out of a trial, you're in the midst of the trial, or get ready because you're about to head into a trial. Those are just the phases, and we all go through them. So don't be surprised when you go, woohoo, I made it through. Uh, oh, no. Here's the next one. I think, not on your notes there, but I think added, you know, don't, don't go through whatever it is that you're going through alone. We're meant to go through that in community. It's the body of Christ. So don't suffer in silence. Come and have people pray with you and walk alongside you and encourage you and maybe even, right, correct you, guide you. Um, I just think it's amazing, this progress of chapter one, and we keep talking about it. Ordinary people, Thessalonians are no different than us. We looked at that. They're going through much affliction. They're doing it with joy, and they're having a contagious church. We want to have a contagious church. We want to, we want to see the gospel going out from here. And that might mean going through affliction with joy. And that might mean you going through affliction with joy. So that the gospel might go out and proclaimed all over the world. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this morning. Um, we don't uh, advertise the sermons because nobody wants to come to church when we're talking about suffering. But Lord, we recognize that we need to learn what it means to go through affliction and suffering as a follower of Jesus Christ. May we have a right view of God, a right view of what you're doing in us to mold us and shape us into your image, and a right view of the church and what we are supposed to do is we reflect the sufferings of Christ in a way that brings you glory. And so God, help us to internalize these things, speak to us throughout the week. I pray for those who are going through physical and financial and relational issues, God, that you would bring um, strength into their life, that they would see you working in their life, uh, that they would rely on you in, in a fresh way this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.